Welcome everyone to the ninth episode of season four of the Northern Spin podcast brought to you in association with FI Real Estate Management. My name is Michael Taylor. I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest. I'm a lifelong journalist and a sometime politico. Now, Chris, it's not very often I feel sorry for my co-host here, Chris McGuire, but how many more times are we going to open up this podcast with the line, another bad week for Rishi Sunak and the Tories? Yeah, there's no, uh, I can just tell the element of disappointment in your voice there when you have to use that line. Yeah, um, I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. I, I often feel actually that I feel like I'm in a boxing match with one arm tied behind my back. It reminds me of being back at school back in the day when you used to play football on the school field and you used to have to line up against a wall and two captains, normally the two with the biggest mouths, would pick a team and you were hoping you'd get picked. And then you'd realise pretty quickly that you were in the worst team and that all the best players were in the other team. And I feel at the moment, as a lowercase c conservative, that I'm in the team with no decent players and all the duffers, and you're in the team with all the best players. That's how I feel today. And I'm particularly sore because England are 2-0 down in the ashes as well. Well, I think we've got to take emotion out of it. We've got <laughs> to approach this as professional journalists and analysts and bring people some genuine insights without uh, trying to get all upset about what's going on in the politics. Um, anyway, Chris, what's the worst that can happen? We what? get a Labour government. Did they wreck the economy last time round? No, despite what everyone said. Uh, think the stars are aligning. The arc of history is bending in the favour of the progressive cause and you should just embrace it. If somebody said to me, England will win the Ashes 3-2 and we'll get a Labour government, I'd bite your hand off. Uh, which one? The Ashes or Labour? Both. i take them. i take <laughs> I take Labour if it meant winning the Ashes. Okay, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, other, other than cricket and politics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to talk exclusively about the Conservatives and their woes because we'd be here all day and it just sounds like the same old, same old. We're going to talk about the travails of the water companies. This is hugely oh. interesting. Um, last week, we heard the government may need to come to the rescue of the financially strapped Thames Water Company. We'll discuss how the water industry can go from a point of having zero debt then it gets privatised in 1989. Now they're saddled with around about £65 billion worth of debt. Um, and we were told a couple of weeks ago, you can't swim in the sea in case you, uh, uh, in case you run into a poo. Um, yes. Can okay. we use the word poo on yeah. the show? Oh, your, your threshold and my threshold are yeah. somewhat different. Okay. I would have said something a lot yeah. stronger. Anyway, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do want to talk later in the show about United Utilities. Uh, they were a no-show, a public meeting on the Fylde Coast, which I think is pretty poor. I want to talk about the uneasy standoff between Education Secretary Gillian Keegan who I know that you, you quite like her, you think she's a decent Tory, and the Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham over his planned Manchester Baccalaureate. Yeah, what I like about Gillian Keegan is, I mean, she makes a big player of the fact she's a working class girl from Knowlesley who's been a success in life, but also she's not afraid to answer a question, and if she doesn't know the answer, to say as much. Yeah, I've got quite interesting views on that as well. I don't think Labour have had it all their own way this week. I think um, Labour's hierarchy have been accused again of being heavy-handed over the discipline of Gordon Brown's former speechwriter Neil Lawson. He's quite a uh, he, he's quite a Marmite character as well. But you're going to shed some light on that one, Michael. I also want to wish the NHS a happy 75th birthday this Wednesday. We're recording this on Monday, so happy 75th birthday NHS. But I don't think anyone's kidding themselves that the health service isn't in anything other than an absolute no, downward we'll, spiraling we'll, crisis. We will talk about all things NHS. It's all very topical because I very nearly met West Streeting on the weekend, and I'll be discussing that. We'll be talking about the fact. Greater Manchester has been named the worst city in Europe for clean and green transport, which is rubbish. And we'll be discussing a question raised by our friends at The Mill. 
Does anyone know what Manchester's £210 million venue, Aviva Studios, is actually for? But before all that, time for some quick thank yous. We simply couldn't do this podcast without our friends at What Media, who expertly produce this podcast every single week. They're the kings of video content creation, and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. They make us feel like part of the team. They sometimes even make us a decent brew. But more than that, they're absolutely tipped up at what they do. And on that note, let's go to our first interval. FI Real Estate Management is not your traditional property company. Founded in 1982 and managing assets totaling more than 1 billion, FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on going on the journey with their tenants. FI Real Estate Management, the property company with personality. So we're going to start, Michael, by talking about the water companies. Now, I'll do a quick roundup. Okay, at the start of last week, Sarah Bentley, somebody I didn't know, she was a chief exec of... uh, Thames Water, she announced she's resigning with immediate effect after criticism of a £1.6 million pay packet. Some people have said it was closer to £2 million, but we're not going to split hairs over four hundred grand. let us not. And also, she got a lot of stick because of the company's environmental performance as well. Got a big problem with leaks. And they get fined very heavily when there's leaks. A couple of days later, it was announced the government was drawing up plans to take over the debt-laden Thames water amid fears the company could collapse, which is unbelievable given the millions of people that they serve as well. Now, this raises a number of serious questions about the water companies and also about privatisation. Now, back in the day, 1989, I was 17, the water company said zero debt. Margaret Thatcher made a big point about saying that actually what we're going to do, we're going to open up the water companies, we're going to privatise them. They're now in hock to the tune of £65 billion. Now, those estimates do vary. That was a figure that Andrew Neil came up with, but it seems fairly consistent. You reported in Business Desk that United Utilities Executive had pulled out of a planned meeting to speak at uh, in Thornton between Blackpool and Fleetwood on the far coast over stories about uh, sewage in the sea off the coast of Blackpool as well. Um, there's growing anger about the water companies mm-hmm. on so many different levels, but this issue of privatisation, clearly it's not working. What's your take? Yeah, um, the water companies haven't done themselves any favours, neither of their national trade association, Water UK. I think they've been quite arrogant and high-handed. One argument in their defence, and I always try to look at things from both sides, would be that the 65 billion, which is on the balance sheet of the privatised water companies and is therefore the burden of their shareholders, is better there than on the balance sheet of the UK um, state. But anyway, so we ran that story that you alluded to, Chris, about um, about United Utilities in Fleetwood. It basically involved the fracturing of a pipe at the sewage works at Fleetwood. <laughs> I never thought in my wildest dreams when I set out to be a journalist, I would spend a lot of time writing about sewage works. But there you go. Anyway, when it rained, they have this system called st- storm overflows, where wastewater, which includes rainwater and household waste, is discharged into the sea. The alternative is overflowing the drains and sewers and going back into businesses and properties. And obviously nobody wants that to happen. To be fair, and we ran the story um, about the civil engineering efforts of United Utilities deploying about 200 people from the oil industry to rebuild these pipes, to do a bypass pipe, to sort out the problem at the, uh, the sewage works. 
and local people called a public meeting in Thornton Cleveland's to ask United Utilities to come along and explain. And with a few hours notice, they pulled out. Personally, I think that can only ever look bad. Now, I've been on the other side of disputes with members of the public, and I always think it's best to front these things out rather than do nothing and never back out of a promise. However, while people in France are burning down buildings and having riots with the police over the death of that young man on the outskirts of Paris, which is appalling, by the way, while their farmers are out on the streets and blocking roads, 40 people turned up to that meeting. Sometimes I despair at the apathy and just casual acceptance of these things when there's absolutely... <laughs> Blackpool's a tourist resort and yet you can't go in the sea. You can't, you can't go paddling in the sea. My mum, went to a, my mum went to a council meeting about two weeks ago about planned houses near where she lives. You'll like it. And uh, she's, she's not very happy about it. Um, but um, there were two members of the public there and she was one of them. Now, I want to talk about privatisation because um, and I come at it probably similar to you, but from a slightly different uh, viewpoint as well. In terms of privatisation, I don't think it's worked. I mean, it was 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, the water industry has become effective. It's become a cash cow for debt funds and VCs. You've got to ask yourself, is that what you really want a water company to be? Billions have been paid out in dividends. Household water bills set to go up by 7.5%. Now, I want to give you a figure. Sarah Benley was paid between 1.6 and 2 million pounds uh, to be the uh, chief exec of Thames Water. If you look where the situation is different in Scotland, the chief executive of Scottish Water earns around £295,000. A big salary, but nowhere near as big mm-hmm. as the obscene amounts being paid to Sarah Bentley and her like. Yeah. Years ago, I used to be the uh, used to do investigations for the Bristol Evening Post. And I did an investigation into a guy called Colin Skellett, who was the boss of Wessex Water down there. And I think he's still in charge today, actually. I think he's about 78. And I went to his house and he has got a phenomenal house. He's got a swimming pool, he's got everything. I mean, it's about three or four million pound house. Now, I'm not decrying people living in nice houses. I'm just saying as the boss of Wessex Water, to live in a great big house like that, it was a bit uh, eye-watering or mouth-watering, depending on whether I've got my teeth in. All the while, there's leaks all over the place. Sewage is being pumped into the sea. The water industry is broken. The Environment Secretary, Trees Kofi, in my opinion, is really lightweight. Um, she's not up to the job. Uh, in fact, I think she went missing last week when there was an announcement in the House of Commons. And, uh, and once again, it's a tough week for the toys because everyone's looking to the Conservatives to bail out, pardon the pun, you know, the water companies. Yeah, that's right. I think one of the, the issues about the, the, the salaries that people command is because they come from, they're, they're people who come from the financial world. They won't be water engineers who've risen, risen to the top of their profession and infrastructure specialists, you know, who, who might be fully entitled to, to big packages if they're as good as, as that sort of salary commands. But people in the financial world are used to huge salaries and huge packages. And that's the priority. That is the, it's financial engineering, isn't it? Effectively what they're being rewarded for. Anyway, yeah, I think we both agreed the water industry is a mess, but what are Labour gonna do about it? Are they gonna renationalize? Are they gonna commit to that? I very much doubt it. They I think it's fairly low down on a list of priorities when you when we consider the things that we're going to talk about today, like transport, like yeah. other infrastructure, and and of course like uh, the NHS. Anyway, what else are we going to talk about in this very very tough week for the Tories? Yeah, well, Gillian I'm- Keegan's coming over the hill as a as a potential bright light for for your lot yeah well they're not my lot they're not my lot you keep oh, you know they're not he's I'm, bitten did you see that lowercase c conservative 
Um, you're, you're getting too laborious again. But um, <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about a little, um, a tasty little standoff has emerged, not between England and Australia, the cricket, but between Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham and the Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, who I think is a real person. We've spoken a lot about uh, Burnham's planned Manchester Baccalaureate to create a clearer path for young people who don't want to go to university. There was a major education conference last week in Sheffield where Burnham appeared on video and said, his quotes, we're not going to take no for an answer. Now, uh, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan was asked about that on Northern Agenda, and she said that Tandy Burnham didn't have the power to introduce the reforms by himself and that she was opposed to regional <coughs> variations in education standards. Mm. Now, surely it's not a bad thing to say you can't have a qualification in Manchester and it's different in Liverpool, or can you? I don't think that's what Andy Burnham is proposing. Um, there's a very small proportion of school students in this conurbation where we're sat right now in Greater Manchester and a northern spin goes out across the north. Um, that's not what's the uh, Manchester MBAC. It's a pathway. It's not a new curriculum. And I know politics is often about picking fights, as is this podcast, fights that you know you can win. But this is pretty poor even by the Tories' own standards, in my view. So I asked Andy Burnham about, about I asked Andy Burnham about this when he launched his skills offer pre-Christmas in partnership with local colleges, with the Chamber of Commerce. And, and I asked him if effectively he was digging the government out of a hole on T levels. So T levels are an alternative to A levels for post 16. It provides a route to a standard that hasn't been popular with students, parents, colleges, or employers. And he was offering a way for T-levels to be much more widely adopted. And yet here it is, a pragmatic politician willing to think ahead, holding out an olive branch to the government. And yet I think it's evidence that Gillian Keegan is, drumroll, on manoeuvres because she's willingly misunderstanding the basis of the MBAC and trying to court popularity within the Tory party by taking on a fundamentally popular Labour politician that she knows has few defenders on his own side in Westminster. That is my theory. It's worth mentioning, of course, that we are interviewing the Great Manchester Mayor on this podcast later this month in a special bonus episode. So that's all very exciting. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. Well made, as always. I will be asking Andy Burnham uh, about that when he appears at the end of the month. That'll be our 10th uh, episode of season four, our final episode of season four as well, because we've got a break of a few weeks after this episode. Now, I think there's lots of reasons why we do this podcast for. I mean, obviously, the millions of pounds that we are coining in every week is one of them. Spending times with the talented guys at What Media is another one as well. But also, we we are we do try to provide insight. But also, I think in some respects, a statement of record. It's interesting to to listen back to the podcast. You know, you can listen back all the way to September now. Burnham's had a busy time this week. I think he's uh, raised his profile. He gave a speech at the Housing 2023 conference at Manchester Central, and he warned that they're going to go to war on rogue landlords and he's announced a raft of policies to fix the rental market. Um, I'm not sure how much he can do to fix a rental market, but it's it's uh, it's it's laudable for sure. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of this rhetoric from Andy Burnham. What do you think? <laughs> well, for a start, I don't think it's rhetoric. I think it's a concrete plan of action. I'd be interested. I, I don't know the intricacies of housing policy and housing law. I think um, a, a lot of the uh, social landlords, housing associations and um, council uh, residential um, housing departments sign up to a, what is effectively something very similar is the basis to the good landlord charter that he's proposing. But I think it's laudable. I mean, we saw that young kid died up in Rochdale, didn't we? I think increasing standards for 
housing, licensing landlords, and, in, and potentially seizing their houses if they're not providing an adequate level. I think it's fine. I think it's also, not entirely out of step with some of the things that Michael Gove's saying about raising housing standards as well. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a reasonably good plan of action and we await to see more detail. Can I ask you a question, and one that I've not given you any advance warning about, is that my thinking is that if Labour win the next election, if, win, if Labour win the next election, which they almost certainly will, yeah. you would assume that something like Andy Burnham will have more power, more devolution, more autonomy, but it'll also have the year of government because mm -hmm. Labour will be in government. And yet there is this feeling that him and Keir Starmer don't necessarily get on. Yeah. So the fact that Gillian Keegan is sounding off about the uh, baccalaureate doesn't really matter because they probably won't be in power in 13 months. But do you see that relationship between... Andy Burnham and Keir Starmer being a problem moving forward. Yes, yeah, I very much do. And don't don't assume that just because there's a Labour government that they'll be granting any special favours to a Labour mayor in in any of the regions. Gordon Brown's commission on power did say it should be redistributed. He took a lot of ideas on board from people like Andy Burnham, the other metro mayors around the country. Um, you know. Uh, Sir Richard Lease and Howard Bernstein always felt that they got better deals out of the Tories than they ever did under a Labour government. I remember standing in, uh, going to a press conference convened by Richard Lees in um, St Peter's Square when the Metrolink expansion was cancelled by the then Labour Chancellor, the Transport Secretary, Alistair Darling, and Richard Lees holding a banner with Move Over Darling, which is great. But... Um, so there is always the potential for a Labour government to collide with Labour in local government. I think Labour always, even in the Blair years, the Wilson years, always had a tendency to, to command and control from the centre. And I think it's going to be a real test of the ambitions and aspirations of a new settlement, how much Labour embraces that. So that the rhetoric is a word you used earlier around decentralisation. And that's I think why there's an opportunity. But I think they're deeply suspicious of Andy. That, that's why I think, you know, Andy Burnham is almost laying out his his position on quite a lot of subjects now as well. And brings us quite neatly on to the fact that um, somebody else has fallen out with Keir Starmer. So before we get on to talk about the Conservatives, which I know you want to, Labour are moving to expel Gordon Brown's former speechwriter, Neil Lawson. Now that's getting quite a lot of airtime, particularly in The Guardian, no surprise there. Just tell us why this story is quite significant. Yeah, so Neil Lawson is a kind of a Labour advisor. Um, he's involved in a think tank called Compass, which is centre-left. He's been banging on about this, and I find some, some of it I find quite annoying. He's been banging on about this idea of a progressive alliance back to the 80s. He used to run a consultancy called um, Lucas Lawson Mendelssohn, nothing to do with Peter, but with um, Ben Lawson. Uh, sorry, uh, Ben Lucas, who's now a partner with Mike Emmerich in an economic consultancy called Metro Dynamics. Neil's an interesting character who does believe that there's opportunities to create a more progressive politics, to advocate for voting reform, to, for there to be alliances with the Greens and the Liberal Democrats. My problem is I've had to face Liberal Democrats in local government. I remember their fundamental untrustworthiness. And I never forget that actually from 2010 to 2015, they were literally part of a Tory government. So I do find some of what Neil says slightly hard to swallow. 
Um, and I also remember their unwillingness to step up in 2019 when an opportunity opened up to completely reset British politics forever. However, Neil Lawson's view is a valid one, even despite how much I might disagree with it. And so what's happened is he's had a letter saying, explain yourself for presumably some tweet that he's done. Yeah. I've seen letters like that that were sent to, um, to, to councillors when I worked for the Labour Group on Stockport Council. And it seems worse than it is. He's got to go to some sort of hearing. I think headlines that he's being expelled, I think have been clarified that that's premature. What I actually think they're doing, the Labour Party, is they've got absolutely everybody on watch to say, if you step out of line and we've got a really razor eye on your social media, we will boot you out. And I think that's a message to say whether you're a bit more of a centrist, like Neil Lawson, or whether you're someone on the left, like Diane Abbott and Jeremy Corbyn and various other left fellow travellers. So I think they're trying to say that actually we're being even-handed in how brutal we're uh, enforcing discipline. I've got a view on that, um, and you're, you're clearly better placed to provide an insight than me. But 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 what it once again what it does highlight is that you know Starmer wants everyone singing from his song sheet, and if you don't if you're not willing to pull the line with him, you're you're going to be uh, you know you're going to be sent out on your ear as well. Um, talking about being out on your ear, a lot of people keep asking me. They keep saying to me, "Day Chris, is it we're really concerned that Michael is being blocked by Navinda Meshru?" You know, Stockport's Labour MP as well. And I say, well, I will ask. I said, because when, because I think that'll be like a break on Sky News. Navender Mishra has lifted his ban on Michael Taylor on his Twitter account. That's if Twitter survives. Are yeah, you still yeah. banned? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm still banned. But um, the good thing is I, I have lots of other accounts that I can look at his tweets. So, um, so he, he's on his best behaviour, you know, in, in the context of what I was just describing about um, Labour MPs and Labour activists having their Twitter scrutinised. He's been on his best behaviour. He's the very model of a good constituency MP, supporting Armed Forces Day and pointing at things like MPs do, hanging out with his friends, um, former councillors like Louise Haywood from Edgeley, who lost at the last uh, local elections. Um, and, you know, he's not campaigning and saying reinstate Jeremy Corbyn, despite obviously being a really uh, big supporter of Jeremy back in the day. But, yeah. but what do you think? Well, one thing, I, well, well, I'm going to ask a question really, but Angela Rayner came up to Bolton a couple of months ago, didn't she? Yeah. And she was seen campaigning with the, what was the name of the? Lee Drennan. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. guy who didn't make the long list in Bolton. Yeah. Okay, now obviously she knew what she was doing and she was stirring it up a little bit. What would somebody like, Nuff. you know, yeah, Navenda Mishra have to do to to fall out of favour with Andy with uh, with 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 Starmer and be deselected, uh, and, and is he is is, is is as a consequence he's yeah. having to like you know be so mindful of not upsetting the apple cart. He's I saying know, nothing. Saying that he really enjoyed watching something on Russia Today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or yeah. saying uh, he's signing a stop the war coalition motion about the war in Ukraine, or demanding that Jeremy Corbyn be reinstalled in the Labour Party because. You know, the whole thing about anti-Semitism was overblown and exaggerated. I'm not suggesting he's done any of those things or he wants to do any of those things. Mm, But but doing so, I think, might uh, cause eruptions. Or write a letter to the Observer saying that ginger people are, you know... Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Diane Abbott did. Yeah, absolutely. So Um, there are examples of things that people have been kind of wrapped over the knuckles for. But that would be true of of every Labour MP and every Labour politician. Um, Talking of that, actually... 
I listened to an interview that Kim, uh, Kim, um, uh, it was uh, Kim McGuinness did. Yeah, 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 yeah. She did an interview with uh, our friend Rob Parsons last week. Now, yeah. obviously, you, she's the well, she's the red hot favourite to be the first Metro Mayor of the Northeast. Now, she wasn't because Jamie Driscoll was tipped to be the next, uh, you know, uh, Metro Mayor of the Northeast. But famously, yeah, by he's you. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's a North Italian mayor, yeah. and uh, he's been barred from Labour's long list after appearing on a stage with Ken Loach, which gets back to the point we made before. You listen to Kim McGuinness, who, who I think is a listener of this show, actually. I thought she came across really well, but she wouldn't go near the Jamie Driscoll question. And it was like, it was like it was almost flashing red when he asked it. And uh, she sidestepped it. She said, I just can't talk about that. I will fight anybody who I'm up against, whether that's, she didn't even name check him actually. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Now, what I would say is, you know, wearing my um, lowercase c conservative hat for a second, I don't actually blame Starmer for getting rid of people or not allowing them to stand who he perceives as being potential troublemakers. Because if you look at the problems that, um, you know, if you look at the, the problems that the Tories have got yeah. and Rishi Sunak have got, you know, with the troublemakers like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Jake Berry, Nadine Doris et al., you can see that what Starmer's trying to do is he's saying, look, you know what, we might not get, we might not get a big majority, but I don't want these problems year, two, three years down the line distracting us from what we're going to try and deliver. So you can understand why he's doing it for, but the danger is it could create a very one dimensional party, which in essence isn't what the Labour Party stood for. It's always, it's always welcomed a breadth of opinions, isn't it? Yes, it needs two wings to fly, as Harold Wilson famously said. It's a great quote, great yeah. quote. Well, good. Anyway, Chris, you can't put it off any longer. We need to talk about another rotten week for the Tories. And I want to kick off by talking about Rwanda. So last week, the Court of Appeal ruled that the government's Rwandan policy of um, deporting failed asylum seekers or people who've come across on small boats to Rwanda was unlawful. The government is set to appeal against the ruling to the Supreme Court. But here's the thing, Chris, not a single person on BBC's Question Time last week raised their hand to support the Rwanda policy. On that issue and others, the hapless minister that they put up on that show, Helen Waitley, was flailing, really struggling. And on a human level, I found it really, really difficult to watch, however much I might dislike the Tories and their politics. Then you've got Rishi Sunak's gaffe over dentists and therapists, thinking that therapists can go and do the work of dentists, which I think he probably meant hygienists or, or dental assistants. And it, I think I know what he meant, but what he said is what is on the record. I read in the paper that there is also talk of a referendum to come on Britain's membership of the European Court of Human Rights over the Rwanda and immigration issue to expose Labour siding with the illegals. That's a sort of mad idea that the GB News, Thick Right, Lee Anderson types in the Tory party are advocating because what they want is more division and more hatred, which they think that they can thrive on. So this is desperate, desperate, awful stuff from the Tories. They're absolutely a joke now. And I think the decline of anybody's political career actually starts with ridicule and parody. And they're actually beyond that bit at the moment. Rishi Sunak comes across as ridiculous. There's a comedian, I don't know if you've seen her, called Rosie Holt. Where she, Twitter. Yeah, where she plays a kind of a, a hapless Tory MP as a, as, a, as a comedy character. And actually she comes across better than Rishi Sunak and Helen Whateley. Well, what I will say is, and I do agree that Rosie Holt 
is very good. And it's interesting how many people contact her thinking she is an MP, which is probably... Very plausible, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, very, very plausible as well. Um, I, I would agree with uh, Helen Watley. I've heard her quite a few times. She might be super intelligent and she might have a really clear political brain, but she just doesn't come across very well in terms of answering difficult questions. But she's, so asked, to, she's asked to go on these shows and defend the indefensible. And, you know, she gives off all the vibes of not even believing it herself. Well, if the Conservatives wanted to put somebody who was robust, they'd put like a Michael Gove on, but, but they don't. They put somebody, a lower ranking, uh, you know, junior minister like Helen Whateley, who, who isn't probably up to that particular job, in my opinion. I think you're being unfair on Rishi Sunak. I think, you know, you know, likening it to her. The other thing I'll say as well is that we all made mistakes. I made them. I made one last week. Um, I'll make one today for sure. But in terms of, you know, saying saying therapist instead of hygienist, we get the point that he's making. I think the problem the Tories have got with the Rwandan policy, and if I'd been in the audience and I'd been asked to say, do I agree or disagree? I would say wholeheartedly, I disagree. I understand with the I understand the idea that they're trying to deter people making these legal crossings. The problem the Tories have got, and especially Home Secretary Suella Braverman, have got is they force themselves into a foxhole um, over Rwanda. They can't back down this close to a general election as well because Rishi Sunak's made one it one of his five pledges. To quote you, it's 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 a desperate attempt to throw red meat to the right of the party. You always know when the Conservatives are floundering because seven seven weeks Clark, uh, Simon seven weeks Clark is wheeled out in front of the cameras to criticise the court's decision. I can almost imagine a scene in the BBC newsroom or a newsroom. We need a Tory who's going to criticise this. I know. Let's go for Simon Clark. He'll he'll criticise anything. The thick right, as you describe them, are blaming the establishment, you know, over the fact that the uh, the courts have turned down this. And it was two to one, to be fair. The problem is the policy is flawed. The idea of flying somebody all the way to Rwanda, you know, as a solution is clearly not a solution. I think Sunak's made tackling the small boats one of his priorities and he can't back down. I also want to mention something else before we go to a break. Well, it's, it's we're now in July, we're six months uh, into the year. Can you believe? And it's six months since Sunak made his famous, his uh, famous five pledges. Now, at the moment, and I heard a lot of podcasts this week, the general view is you're not going to hit any of them. You're going to be five and out, you know. Now, obviously, we've spoken about inflation and sticking at 8.7%. I think if you could get inflation, you'd have a chance. But you can't get inflation and growth, so he's not going to hit all five. I think the one thing that I found really, really depressing uh, this last week, and I want to want to mention it, was the um, Matt Hancock's appearance at the COVID inquiry. And obviously, the former health secretary was a regular face on our TV screens during COVID. It's hugely depressing to hear him say that the government was too focused on whether they had enough body bags rather than stopping the virus. And this COVID inquiry will be the most damning inquiry ever. And I think um, Justice Hallett, who is overseeing it, will leave no stone unturned as well. Oh, you just wait till Lee Anderson tries to work out whether she voted Remain or not. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They'll question that. Did you watch Did, the COVID inquiry? Did you watch that? I didn't. I've seen the clips of Matt Hancock. I've seen the coverage of it. Um, I think he came across as self-serving and very empathy-free. They're blaming each other, um, settling scores in the Tory party. And it comes back to the point, again, that they're just not serious people with the best interests of the country at heart. I liked what Christina McEnay from Unison said. Matt Hancock talked about social care like it was something he found down the back of his sofa rather than a vital public service. So this is, of course, you know, he's the Minister for Health, but he's also the Minister for all those care homes, which he said he put a ring around. Ring of steel. And he clearly hadn't. He had absolutely no idea how many care homes there were in the country when COVID hit or how many care home residents lived in them. He had absolutely no grasp of his brief whatsoever. So how on earth could he 
have put that protective ring around them that he claimed. Yeah, I, I would say, and I don't find myself defending Matt Hancock very much, his brief is huge. Yeah. The, the, the suggestion is you should hive off social care um, uh, away from, you know, healthcare in no, order to not, give... but it's part of his brief. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he, he did, and he was always very glib when he spoke about a ring of steel. And I speak as somebody who's, one of my uncles was in a care home and he died of COVID as well. You know, it was just, it was just, there's a meme, isn't there, where the guy is on a football pitch and he, 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 he pats down somebody, but they just walk straight past him. There were no defences as well. I think you're absolutely right to hold the government to account, as I am, over the way they dealt with COVID, more so than whether or not Rishi Sunak said, you know, hygienists or therapists. Um, and on that note, we're going to go for our first break. So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month, I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges, and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that. LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. Or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress. Welcome back to part two of the Northern Spin podcast. This is the section where we ask the question, anything to see here? But Chris, you want to say something about the NHS in a moment because Wednesday the 5th of July marks the 75th anniversary of our NHS. On Saturday, I went to the NHS party in the park in Urmston, close to where the NHS was founded at Trafford General Hospital. It's organised by my good friend, Councillor Joanne Harding in Trafford, where streeting was there, but not signing books. What is it? You've got a book out. Why don't you go and promote it? Anyway, it's worth saying that the NHS treats over one million people a day in England alone. Wow. Happy birthday. Do you think the fact that West Eating wasn't signing books was because he doesn't want to be appearing to be making money? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I, 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 like, like you, I think to myself, I think West Eating is a really, really a big asset to the Labour Party and I think he'll be a really good um, you know, health secretary as well. But um, yeah, the anniversary, I think, I know a little bit about the NHS, I think <clears> it will be celebrated in a really understated way. Everyone knows the NHS is in crisis. No one wants to be accused of wasting money when there's more than 7 million people on a waiting list and that figure's only going to grow. Uh, on Sunday, Amanda Pritchard, the head of the NHS England, told BBC's Sunday with Laura Coonsberg that the strike action, which we're going to see throughout July with junior doctors and consultants, that's a disaster when the consultants join, could have a devastating impact on patients. Um, I do want to mention something which came out at the back end of last week. It's interesting. When we do this podcast and we keep a record and we've got a WhatsApp group of all the things that have happened in the previous week, there's so much stuff that gets happened. This is why I think it is worthy of mention. Um, the long-awaited NHS workforce plan came out. Now, politicians of both parties, of all parties, have been banging on about this for ages. There hasn't been a plan. So I think my understanding is that the uh, the politicians asked the NHS to come out with this plan. 
Um, it's not going to help Rishi Sunak or the Tories because effectively what they're trying to do is sort out the problems with staff and the issues of recruitment and workforce. Um, you know, this planned expansion of the healthcare staff won't be delivered until 2031. So effectively, it starts with the Conservatives and if the Labour win the next election, they'll be have to have the baton handed on to them. I think what this echoes is a lot of what Labour have been saying for a while and West Eating said as much as well. I think it's the beginning of something tangible. It's not very sexy. It won't get a lot of attention. Um, but it is a welcome move forward because it's a recognition of the fact that the NHS is understaffed. And uh, if we don't start, we're never gonna we're never gonna get to the next level. Um, did you watch it? Are you were you pleased with it? Were you impressed with it, or or, or not? Yeah, uh, to a point. I think Labour's trusted on the NHS. I've, I've listened to some uh, an interview that uh, West Streeting's done with uh, with the New Statesman, which is really good this week as well. And I like the beginnings of uh, uh, the, the extracts that I've read from his book as well. I think rethinking the role of primary care close to where people are in a community rather than this kind of rush to hospitals all the time and the cost that that is, you know, it's hundreds of pounds rather than a, um, the, the, the much less for people to be treated um, in, in doctor surgeries and in health centres. Um, again, politically, I enjoyed Liz Kendall's responses on an interview this week with Kay Burley about the NHS, where she's always asked, yeah, but how are Labour going to pay for it? Which is, and she just, you know, <laughs> completely snapped at that point and went, no one ever asked the Tories how they want to pay for stuff. Or you're always asking Labour, and yet we've always got an answer, which I thought was a fair point. Yeah, I listened to Stephen Barclay on uh, Lord Coonsberg, and he right. was asked a question, how are you going to pay for all these improvements okay. to the NHS? And he said, well, it's clearly it's going to be reviewed, but the Chancellor has made the NHS a top priority. Maybe will pay for it by stopping small boats or something. Well, I mean, Labour will pay for it by closing the non-DOM status as well. Um, but, but I think it is a fair point. If you're going to ask Labour how they're going to pay for it, it's a fair question to ask Conservatives how they'll pay for it. Good. Now, it's fair to say that if there was an award for the two of us as to the culture vulture amongst us, it would go to you instead of me. So I'm going to ask you a couple well, of questions. you say that. Carry on. Okay. Have you heard of something in Manchester called Aviva Studios? Yes, I have. Aviva Studios is the home of Factory International and the landmark new cultural space in Manchester, located just behind the former Granada Studios, um, uh, the site of St. John's and Spinning Fields. Um, Aviva, the insurance company, purchased the naming rights to Factory International for a reported 35 million quid. That's a big chunk of change. That's isn't it? a lot of money. That's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. But, so, but, what's your point? Well, there are two points, really. The first is a really interesting article by our friends at the Mill by Sophie Atkinson, in which she asks, Does anyone know what Manchester's £210 million venue is actually for? Now, as somebody who doesn't describe myself as being particularly culturally enlightened, albeit I did have an experience at the weekend that we'll be sharing later on the podcast. You know, clearly it's not aimed at me. I didn't know anything about it until I started reading about it. Secondly, critics have questioned whether the decision to rename the arts venue after an insurance company is the way forward. Is it corporate common sense? £35 million, as you say, is a lot of change. Or is Manchester selling its soul? Now, and also, when you think about the history of Manchester, you're a bit, you know, you talk a lot about Tony Wilson so much so actually that when you were the editor of Insider before me and you had the top 100, you always left number 99 open as a tribute to Tony Wilson as well. Is Manchester selling its soul here? Um, no, not really. I mean, what's what springs to mind when you say name a really great art gallery that has um, the, in different cities in the UK, the Tate? 
yeah. named after a corporate. What's uh, Gateshead and Newcastle's biggest cultural attraction? The Sage, right? So there's plenty of venues, and then in sport as well, a lot of them are, are sponsored and named after things. The reason they have to be sponsored by big corporate insurance companies like Aviva is because the arts budget's been completely cut. So there's that. Um, you also mentioned that um, Simon Donoghue, who's a journalist, used to be at the Manchester Evening News. I presume it was on Twitter that you saw that he'd yeah, done this, yeah, where he yeah. said, it's not really for local people. What, what, what was the, con the context of that? Presumably is people saying, this has got nothing for local people in it. He was responding to the article in the mill, and basically right. he highlighted, I and mean, he used to work at Marketing Manchester. So Simon Donoghue, who, who who I know, you know, he, he's quite an authority on this. I think he works for the uh, works in transport now as well. Yes. The point he was making is that this two hundred and ten million pound facility, um, you know, isn't for highlighted local people. Yeah. Okay. So I think he's got a point, if I, if I understand it correctly. It is about bringing arts and culture into the city. You know, just as, um, you know, the Guggenheim in Bilbao is about bringing people into Bilbao as much as it is for the people of that city. It's a venue, an installation. It's going to be the home of the Manchester International Festival, which is quite elitist, right? I can't find anything that I particularly want to go to this year, but it's about putting the city on a certain cultural world map i do get quite weary about these what about the people of liverpool manchester whatever bleats that come out around these these things and i think the mill are indulging in it a little bit as well it assumes a very one-dimensional view of the man in the street to quote tony wilson i note too that sophie from the mill asks whether it appeal appeals to a broad range of people across this city region or whether myth is appealing to a fairly narrow group of mostly middle class people now, I could ask the same of the mill, yeah? Now, as you know, and I'm a fan of the mill, but, you know, I'm going to the Edinburgh Festival in August to see some comedy. Is that aimed at a Hibernian fan from Leith who works in the local Fox's Biscuit factory? Probably not, but it doesn't matter. It's making people and, and, and boosting the economy of Edinburgh because they've had the smarts to work out there's a cultural offer there. And... Yes, there are questions over the uh, the cost overrun. There are also the, the, the costs about the effects on other arts projects in the city that may have uh, had their grants cut. You know, we've talked on this podcast about Oldham Coliseum Theatre, which had its Arts Council grant slashed and has had to close down. So, yeah, I think there's a bigger debate on this one, but just sneering at it because it's... Uh, because it's got some Japanese artist in it is um, is cheap. I think that's an interesting point you make as well, actually, because it is very easy to snipe at uh, stuff like this just because it doesn't. Uh, it's not on your agenda. It's clearly it's not on my agenda. I remember when Liverpool announced they were going to back the Giants, these great big huge structures that you know that were coming through the streets of Liverpool, and my first reaction was like my reaction to my dad: Why would you do that for? And then my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their family went to it, and my wife went to it with our girls as well and the streets were packed yeah. it was, I mean, I mean hundreds of thousands of people yeah. so uh, so I do think there's some merit in that and, now, the, and the city is absolutely buzzing around the time of the festival right yeah and people and, and I'm sorry but the people of Manchester is is not one dimensional it's many people and Festival Square will be absolutely buzzing so now, yeah I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that I've got, a, I've got a serious condition, a serious medical condition, and I'm hoping you can help me with it because I know this is something that, that, that has afflicted you over the years. And 
you know, I tried to make a point with a doctor and unfortunately, you know, you ring at eight o'clock and you're kept in a waiting list and I can't get through. I don't know whether there's any cure for it, but I'm finding myself reading The Guardian a lot. <laughs> now, what do you recommend? I mean, Dr. Taylor, I mean, is there any cure for this? I think you should embrace it, Chris. I merely <laughs> suggested that you should embrace your Guardian reading side yeah. and be nothing other than the professional journalist they know you to be in order to expose yourself to all <laughs> viewpoints. I was re I read Richard, Richard Littlejohn's column in the... Um, Daily Mail last How week. How did it make you feel? It was drivel, absolute yeah. bile, yeah. terrible. Yeah, yeah, no, but, it, but at least it even even started it with the phrase "these days." Yeah, no, I, I can't. Which is a Stuart Lee joke, by the way. No, it's 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 well above my head as these, well. Do you know what, Chris? These days, you can get arrested and thrown in jail just for saying you're English. Yeah, well, it's uh, there's another another cultural reference there. That's well, probably, when did they bring that in? Anyway, anyway, carry on. You can tell me. Um, the reason I uh, the reason I mentioned my problem with reading The Guardian is there's another story that appeared. It's like the algorithms on social media, it highlights the story. So the Clean Cities campaign declared Manchester the worst city in Europe for green and green transport, or for clean and green transport. Yep. Now, the ranking is based on lots of measures. Um, you know, the lack of electric shared car points, the lack of electric buses, the relative little charging infrastructure. And it is interesting when you walk around Manchester, there isn't a lot of it. Um, there's some talk today about whether or not the government should roll back on the plans to, uh, you know, phase out petrol and diesel cars, given and, and this move towards electric cars, given the fact that electric cars, a lot of them still haven't got the range that they're requiring and the infrastructure is not in place to charge these, yeah. um, these, uh, these cars. Last week, there were fewer than 400 B bikes. I'll be honest, I've never ridden one, but uh, you can rent them out in Manchester. But there's been a spate of vandalism, which means that a lot of them are waiting to be repaired as well. We've mentioned it a lot on this podcast. Podcast. Every time I drive into Manchester, I see Andy Burnham's Clean Air Zone signs, um, you know, covered up, uh, or, or there's the uh, sign next to it under review. Is there anything to see here? And do you feel that Manchester is Europe's worst city for clean and green transport? No, I, I, I don't think it probably is. I don't trust this research. Um, I haven't had time to go into it in as much detail as I would like in order to make that fairly bold assertion. But for a start, let me just pick up a few things that I did find. For a start, it defines Manchester as being the metro area of Greater Manchester, taking in all points from Bolton to Stockport, from Altrincham all the way up to Oldham, Rochdale, and all points in between, uh, where it doesn't do the same with Birmingham. It doesn't include any acknowledgement whatsoever about the contribution to sustainable transport from the electric metro Metrolink tram system. It also has a weighting towards sharing EV and charging points, something without the control of the Greater Manchester uh, local politicians. It's government policy. Also, Greater Manchester is getting a zero emission bus fleet to be based in Stockport. I literally was involved in signing off that press release when I worked there. That is a major, major um, step forward. You know, what has this whole B network stuff been all about? It's about creating a, a sustainable transport network. And as for the uh, all the bikes being vandalized, that is such a stain on our city, isn't it? Yeah. I used to ride the Mo bikes, those orange ones, when I worked at the university down the Oxford Road. I used to like going down to meetings at the other place or up into the city centre. Mobikes were great and quite cheap as well, but they all got wrecked. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, young Scallys see it as a bit of a challenge. No, no, it's very sad. It's very sad. Yeah, what next? Uh, I've got one for you. I'm sure you'll be able to answer it. Is there anything to see at the Yorkshire Post? Yeah. Um, or my national world? Yeah. I, I can't provide any insight. 
But yeah, I'm not sure I can provide on. the Yorkshire Post. Yeah, there we? are things going on, and I think it's worthy of mentioning. I'm not sure I can provide much insight as well. So the background is Yorkshire Post is involved in a very high-profile spat with Blocker Ben Houchin, the T-size mayor, and seven uh, Simon Seven Weeks Clark over what's happening at Teesworks and all the dead crabs and crustaceans. Right. Um, I mean, Simon Clark decided to pick a fight with uh, the Yorkshire Post, and uh, and they uh, and they bit and they've they've shone a light on what's been happening. Last week, the editor James Mitchison, very prolific on Twitter, he tweeted. I've been doing this for over 20 years. Never, ever have I received a legal threat without there being cause to sniff about. So you read that and think, oh, there's obviously a legal threat. There is. I've tried to find out what that legal threat is, who it's from, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone's staying tight-lipped. Once it goes legal, nobody says anything. So I don't know if this legal threat has come from Blocker Ben or somebody else, but clearly something is going on. I really, I mainly mark it up for our our listeners to say, yeah, something's going on, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Great. Right. Anyway, I did notice that Ian McNeil, the former editor of the Gazette newspaper in Middlesbrough, which Private Eye described as giving Houchen little scrutiny, has turned up as the comms manager of the Tees Valley Combined Authority. I think stuff like that's interesting. You, there are limited jobs that you can do in Middlesbrough if you're a senior person in an editorial role. So do you therefore consciously or subconsciously pull your punches because you think you might get a job working for Ben Houchen? I think one and of That's the, a pretty bold accusation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's a bit snidey, but I also think that, and this is what people don't realise, is like, um, you know, the newspaper groups at the moment uh, are shelling jobs. And you are talking about, talk about the thin blue line in police. I don't know what the equivalent would be in journalism, but you've got whole newsrooms with barely anybody in them. Mm. And then what people expect is why, the reader says, why aren't people scrutinising Ben Blocker-Houchin in the same way that Private Eye are? And that's probably because they're starting the journalists to do it. And the journalists that are there may, might not be experienced, yeah. and people run the risk of being sued as well. well I get um, those people. I, I've been accused of being up Andy Burnham's backside. Yeah. But I, mean, I should be scrutinising yeah. him and not exposing the fact that well, I'm not going to say what the facts are that I think I should expose, but there's nothing in it. You know, no, I think the thing I'm is, fairly upfront about what I think and what I feel, and I'm not. And and I, if I thought there was something worth investigating, I would. Yeah, it's I my think, job. I think it's incumbent on us to hold people in public authority yeah. to 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 task and to yeah. shine a light on them. And I think, to be I fair, agree. I think Andy Burnham, you know, so far, I think I don't think people can question his integrity. No, I agree. Uh, anyway, who have you got on manoeuvres this week? Well, I've got a couple, actually. Um, the first, the answer is Zach Goldsmith. Right, OK. <laughs> uh, and the reason I want to say Zach Goldsmith is I want to name and shame the 10 Tories who have been accused, I mean, they're guilty. I'm going to say it guilty of conducting a coordinated campaign to interfere with a common investigation into Boris Johnson, Pinocchio. You said last week Johnson has less supporters than he has children, and I don't think you're far wrong. I really don't. Amongst MPs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, 100%. And now, the tawdry 10, as I'm going to call them, is made up of Nadine Doris, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Priti Patel, Zach Goldsmiths, Mark Jenkinson, Michael Fabricant, he of the amazing hair, Brendan Clark-Smith, Dame Andrea Jenkins, and Piers, Lord Cruddus, and Lord Greenhouse. Now, I'm not going to prefix their names with the honours that Johnson shamelessly bestowed on nearly all of them, but can there be a more wretched bunch of hangers-on and sycophants than the tawdry ten? If there is, I don't want to go out with them. 
crony in chief, Lord Zach Goldsmith, quit for about the hundredth time in his pathetic career. And he created this faux outrage by claiming and blaming Sunak's apathy over climate change. I get Zach Goldsmith cares about the environment. I actually do. But the fact that he decided to resign two days after being called out for being, you know, the chief cheerleader in this horrible attack on a judicial, on a on, on a democratic process is 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 typical of the man. He's a horrible individual. I don't like him. He's on manoeuvres and the sooner Zach Goldsmith can sling his hook, the better we'll all be. <laughs> Never, ever hold back, Chris. No. So whatever happened to happy, clappy, small C conservative Chris Maguire with his always be positive and look on the bright side of life? That's that's great. These 10 people, <laughs> he's off, he's off with, again. they operated with no integrity and they just thought they could throw brickbacks and question the integrity of, of, this, of this process, this investigation into the worst prime minister we've ever had. And then when they're called to account, they start to chummy up and make some noise. Yeah. The wonderful John Elledge, um, who I just think is such a lovely, lovely journalist, really witty and bright. I really would su su suggest people check his substack out, formerly of the New Statesman. <laughs> he said this, Zach Goldsmith is far from the worst person in politics. Sorry, Chris. Yeah. But he must be one of those with the biggest gap between who he pretends to be and who he actually is. Isn't yeah. that delicious? It's a great quote. Yeah, yeah great quote. Yeah, nice one, John. But I'll never forget... I will never, ever, ever forgive Zach Goldsmith for the terrible racist election campaign that he waged against Sadiq Khan. And with all his privileges, all his background, all his friends, with Evgeny Lebedev's media cheerleading him at every step of the way, he's still lost. Yeah, he's a horrible man. I want to throw another name into the mix. Um, and he comes under the category of being a horrible man. So Lawrence Fox calls himself an actor. I'll be honest, I can't even remember seeing him in anything. Um, so he's a self-styled leader of the Reclaim Party. And I, I looked into it. He, he defends freedom of speech. He's all re over. Reclaim, reform, rever reverb, reverb. Yeah, it's, it's, I get them all mixed up, those. It's right wing parties. What he claims to stand for, what he claims to stand for, he, he, he's defending the freedom of free speech. That's what he's claiming. Um, and I've got to share this with you as well, because he's all over Twitter and I don't follow him, but I don't know why he keeps appearing on my, uh, keeps appearing on my timeline. Um, so there's been this big outrage last week about. You need, you need to own, you need to adjust what you view. Yeah, I, will, I'll, I might do that. Rather yeah. than do, you do following rather than suggested. Yeah, I've got... Well, the I've suggested got... thing is Twitter's algorithm trying to fuel your, out, your oh, sense right, of outrage. Okay. So they'll be working out what triggers you and sending you more of it. This is why it's just such a despicable platform. You've got the option of following or for you, but this came following. up under for you as well. Yeah. So sometimes I find, when I'm doing a, a troll to find out some of the things we're going to talk about, I look under for you. Uh -huh. So so last week there was a big outrage. Uh, I wasn't outraged, but uh, uh, Nigel Farage, who I've interviewed once, uh, he claimed that he'd been uh, blacklisted by the banks uh, because he, uh, he he holds certain views as well. So Lawrence Jones tweeted, and he, he must have tweeted about a million times. And this is what he tweeted yesterday. Today. Dear Barclays Bank, I have banked with you for 20 years. I'd like to withdraw all my money from your bank in cash on Monday morning, current account and savings to the lot. Please advise us to any documentation you require to facilitate this withdrawal. Okay, so somebody called... Does he have to declare that to the child support agency? It'll be... 
yeah. monitoring him every other weekend. I hope so. I hope so. That's another issue. Um, so uh, somebody called Super Tansky um, got the verification twick, t- uh, t- um, uh, tick, tweeted, just call them up like a normal person, you bell piece, <laughs> which I wouldn't normally share, but it did make me laugh. But then somebody said, called Paul Abbott, Dear Barclays Bank, I have never banked with you, but if you've managed to upset uh, Lawrence Fox, you must be doing something right. So I would like to transfer all my money to your bank in cash on Monday morning. I'd like a current account and savings, the lot. See, there are so many things about Twitter that I absolutely despise, and I'm not a huge fan of Barclays, but you do see some funniness as well. But, I mean, do you think Lawrence Fox is on manoeuvres? No, he's an idiot. I don't want to give him the time of day. I don't know why people do. He stood for London Mayor and got about 10 votes. Did even worse than I did. <laughs> is he standing in uh, Rice Lip and Uxbridge? No, he'll, he'll be doing something like that. He never gets anywhere. I don't know why he bothers. And he claims that his acting career has basically taken a nosedive because um, people won't touch him because he's too dangerous. It's not. Mm. It's because he's made an idiot of himself and he's probably not that good. Yeah, he's not. Anyway, I sort of, anyway, I feel sorry for people who make such fools of themselves in public. Yeah, he, anyway. he's moving into that category of David Icke, isn't he? Possibly, mm. yeah. And on that note, let's go to an interval. So I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community. And the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. So welcome back to the final part of the Northern Spin podcast, part three. Now, normally, this is the fun bit, and we are going to get to some fun bits soon. But um, um, I think it's important that we recognise two people who've died this week, and they've made huge contributions in different walks of life for different reasons. I know you know, or you met one of them, Lord Bob Kersley, a former head of the civil service between 2012 and 2014, uh, during David Cameron's coalition government. He's been working more recently with the Labour Party on its preparations for the next general election. He's died at the age of 68. And I saw so many tributes to him, um, no negative comments at all. And I just thought we should mention um, Bob Kerslake. I also want to mention somebody called Ben Walsworth, MBE, died at the age of 103, fantastic age. He was credited with transforming the derelict docks into what is now Salford Keys. Two huge figures, Michael, that are worth mentioning. Yeah, um, yeah. I, d- I didn't know Ben Walsworth MBE, but that's a grand old age, isn't it? 103. Um, Salford Keys has been an absolute transformation. I remember going down there when they opened a cinema in when I was a student in the 1980s and thought, saw you know the vision and the ambition that uh, that they had for redeveloping the docks. Bob Kerslake, though, I knew Bob a bit. My friend and former boss, Councillor Elise Wilson, as was, was very close to him. He'd agreed to chair the Stockport Merrill Development Corporation for Elise and for Andy Burnham. And they really valued his contribution. He was an able fixer. He led the civil service, Sheffield City Council, Homes England. He was the um, the 
pro-chancellor or the chair of the Board of Governors at Sheffield Hallam University. He ran something called the 2070 Commission, looking 50 years ahead. He was the first person that I saw using the economic data to say that this country was as divided and needed um, an infrastructure revolution in the same way that East Germany needed. Uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, a really, but first and foremost, he was a really able and committed civil servant. He also chaired the first inquiry into the arena terrorist attack in 2017. And I met him and got to know him a little bit when he chaired the Civic University Commission between 2018 and 2019. He had this really lovely West Country burr and a Bath Somerset accent. And he was very supportive of people at different stages of their careers, including, of course, my friend Elise. Mm -hmm. A really sad loss at 68, that's no age. And the mm -hmm. tributes to him have just been lovely and, and really consistent with a lot of the things that, that I found in my very limited dealings with him. No, spot on, spot on. So Chris, you're a big cricket fan. And a report by the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket found English cricket suffers from widespread and deep-rooted racism, sexism, elitism and class-based discrimination at all levels of the game and urgently needs reform. That's fairly damning, isn't it? What do you think? Yeah, it is damning. Um, I, I love cricket, as most listeners to this show will know. Anything that really? tarnishes yeah, you yeah, ever absolutely, absolutely. I cricket is my music. It's your uh, culture. It is, to come yeah. back to a point we were making earlier, you're saying you're not very cultural. You're very cricket, and cricket's part of yeah. Britain's natural culture. No, for it's, all it's, it's. I played it. I'm, I'm 51 now. I played it since I'm 11. I, I love what it stands for, despite my current frustrations. The way I'm playing, um, this um, the whole racism situation in cricket, and and I don't want to confuse racism with elitism because they they are different. Uh, it stems from the case of the former Yorkshire cricketer Azim Rafiq. We've spoken about it before. I think it's difficult for me as a 51 year old white guy to talk about racism on the cricket field. I can only give you my experiences. I've never ever experienced or seen seen racism witnessed it on a cricket pitch but but uh, i've got a couple of uh, very good friends of mine who uh, are brothers both muslims they've done more to educate cricketers around around their around their religion than anything i've read or seen on the television uh, that's integration working and it's absolutely fantastic and i said to them i said have you experienced any racism on the cricket field and they said no no we've never experienced it but we have experienced it in society as well and i just thought it was really interesting uh, intake uh, a really interesting insight from them there is no place for racism in cricket you mentioned rishi sunak he did a really really good interview on test match special over the weekend with jonathan agnew one of my favorite commentators in which he spoke very powerfully about his own experiences of racism his love of cricket and he spoke at length about the inquiry last week and uh, and clearly Clearly, you know, the cricket has got to get its house in order, um, you know, and, and, and I can't comment into how big that problem is. Um, what I would say is the elitism aspect. I think there is merit in that, um, a lot of merit. We've spoken before about Andrew Flintoff's brilliant TV programme, Field of Dreams, and the Afghanistan refugee. Adnan Mikel, who, uh, who who was the star of that show. And as I've mentioned before, I opened a batting with him in his first game in England. He's still talking about it. There's there's no question that at the elite end of the game, um, he's talking England first class cricket, that if you went to a private school and you got the you got access to the pitches and the facilities that 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 people who go to the state school don't get, you've clearly got a better chance of making it in the game as well. If you looked at 
you know, the cricket game that I played in on Saturday um, for White Coppice, I don't think anybody there went to a private school. There are no barriers to joining club cricket like White Coppice. But 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 it is a it was a but 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 I'm glad I'm glad that this report's come out because we can't assume that everything in the world of cricket is is all sweetness and light. And well, you've said yourself your your, your cricket, cricket club is often on on the uh, on the brink of peril. You know, and it's 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 very it's on a bit of a knife edge. You were going to fold at one point. I think cricket seriously has got some big systemic issues, and and I think the scope of the report which I read. Um, is, is fairly deep and fairly thorough. I read some very detailed, I had some really detailed discussions with a board member at Lancashire County Cricket Club, um, James Sheridan, who knows of the systemic and institutional shortcomings the game has. He came to it as you, as a parent of a girl who his, his daughter plays cricket to a pretty high level at a, at a, at a, at a university. And he talks a lot about how they're trying to make the 100 much more inclusive. I saw some terrible photographs at the weekend of boorish behavior of Lancashire fans on the Metrolink. You know, that whole stag do feel around cricket as a spectator sport at some of these big games. I think uh, organizationally, it's not that welcoming for, for different communities. Think particularly, you know, Muslim communities that, that, that doesn't drink and doesn't embrace the alcohol culture, but like sort of test matches, one day cricket and the, t and the T20, it's, it's drink soaked. And I think they've got to look, look at addressing that as well. I want to mention, want to mention one person, if I may. It's, there's a, uh, an England cricketer called, uh, former cricketer, Ebony Rainford Brent. She used to play for Surrey as well. Yeah. Um, she is a, uh, she's a fantastic commentator, got a great sense of humor. And um, she is a person of color. And she came up with an initiative. She recognized that there weren't enough things in London to, to get kids into cricket. And she yeah. launched an initiative. I think she called it Reach. And it is, it, you know, because kids were so, were just not, not having any access to cricket. And what she realized, and what the ECB realized very quickly, actually, there is the interest there if they know about it and they can access it. And that's, that's proving to be a huge success as well. So, yeah, all power to the elbow for everyone. There's a lot of brain. time and bandwidth taken up in the report around the whole subject about why um, people who'd come from the, from the West Indies, from the, um, from the Caribbean to this country, how cricket has sort of vanished as a as a part of their culture among their communities. The in West this Indies haven't qualified for the first time ever in the uh, the next World Cup. They've gone to have to go through qualifying because their performances right. have been super, super super so poor, and they've not qualified. That and that is just a race to the bottom. Um, what have you been up to this week, Michael? Well, last Friday I walked through gorges, woods, moors, and riverbanks from Grindleford to Chatsworth Estate and back along the river. Um, I'm also on the brink of giving up Twitter for good. This restriction that they've done, so the number of things you can tweet, you can scroll, is just ludicrous. I didn't even realize I breached it, but apparently I did. Elon Musk is killing Twitter, trying to encourage people to sign up. I'm not going to sign up for the paid version of it. No. Not, not doing it. No, me neither. And he's taking my blue tick away. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, that would have been fresh walks you went on. It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good for the soul. Very good for the soul. Great to spend time. And, and I do loads of work, strangely yeah. enough. You end up talking about like, you know, work stuff and deals and, 
Yeah. See, see, people talk Audit about thresholds. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. I, I try and, uh, I'm going for a walk and talk this week with uh, uh, somebody who I've got a lot of respect for, who simply we don't get time to, to talk because he's busy and I'm busy, but yeah. we're going to chew the fat for an hour and a half. So what else have you been up to? Um, well, I hosted the Yorkshire Tech Climbers event in Leeds last week and uh, that, was, that was fizzing with excitement. I mean, it's something we do with a company called Active Profile. 19 companies, we shall light on, plus six other companies, ones to watch. And the great thing about Leeds is when you organize an event, and you'll know this as somebody who hosts a lot of events, the drop-off rate is always quite high. But this event in Leeds, a lot of the people, nearly all the people who said they were going to attend, attended. Um, I think Leeds is a fantastic city. I think its tech sector is absolutely buzzing. Uh, this event was aimed at Yorkshire, but there were companies there from Halifax, from York, from Sheffield, from Hull. Um, got a lot of time for Yorkshire. There's one story I want to mention, uh, which is about a delivery tech platform called Sorted. It started life as my parcel delivery, and it was set up by a guy called uh, David Grimes and a guy called Paul Haydock. They went their separate ways, all very amicable. The company rebranded, eventually it got called Sorted. And basically, I did an event with him and his phone was pinging. I said, what's that? He said, every time somebody places an order on the platform, my phone pings, it's brilliant. You know, you wanna get something from A to B, but you don't want to deal with a courier delivery company, you go through this platform, they do it all for you. Now they've raised a lot of money. 2021, they raised the 30 million pounds um, in December, 40 million US. That came nine months after they'd raised 11 million pounds, 15 million US. They've raised a lot of money. And then last week, and then we've spoken before about WeJo, we've spoken before about Open Bank and the problems that have happened since Silicon Valley Bank went into uh, you know, collapse and they, they had to be rescued as well. The investors have taken fright. The thing about Sorted, it's never turned a profit. It's got huge growth. It's got you know customers and you know, 500 plus customers all over the world. Story emerged last week that a company called Location Sciences, a guy called Simon Wilkinson behind that, he set to loan, well they're set to loan Sorted 2.6 million uh, and acquire its loans for just a pound in exchange for assuming their debts of four million pound. Now put another way, that means that a company that has hoovered up like probably probably approaching 100 million US in investment is set to be sold to a company for 6.6 .6 million pounds. Now, and it's never made a profit. We're gonna see more stories like this because investors want to see profit, not just growth. True, yeah, I think we are seeing a lot more of stuff like that. Um, so, culture. Uh, what have you been up to on the old culture front yeah. this week? So I watched two episodes of the new series of Black Mirror highly recommended and very very dark i like the second one of the two that i watched better lock henry classic horror with a modern day satire and some savage twists the first one was called joan is awful which was um, a little bit like truman's show but with a dark modern edge and it did make me want to go and check the terms and conditions on my netflix account so you went to the Lytham festival and I, I looked at your posts and my sister's posts it didn't look like you were in the same area of the stage but it did look like you were both very, very wet from the rain. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, look, you know, I, I'm not somebody who goes to a lot of um, concerts. I'm not. I, I'll give you the good bit first. Sting, amazing. 71 years of age. He absolutely stole the show. Staggering. Blondie, we're okay. We didn't get to see the Kaiser Chiefs um, because we couldn't get in. Right, why was that? Well, because um, if you buy your tickets through Ticketmaster, which, which my wife did, you can't print them out and you can't take a screenshot. You've got to have the app on your phone and then you scan it in. The problem is if you've not got Wi-Fi, you can't open the app, so you can't get your tickets. So so my wife spent over an hour trying to get in to uh, to the venue. I mean, it was, 
like you mentioned, after all nine weeks of glorious sunshine, we've had a week of nonstop yeah. rain. Yeah. And Friday was like, it was like the end of the world. It was horrendous. Um, and I was like, you know, pardon my French. I was a PIWS wet through. It was horrible. Um, get him with so, swearing. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So, so and, and the other thing, and maybe I'm just like, you know, old and grumpy now, but I found myself sitting next to a guy, you know, who's chain smoking. And then I try and move next to him and I find myself surrounded by vapors and every single odious smell in the world suddenly <laughs> like goes up my nostrils. I had to shower. I felt contaminated when I get home. I felt dirty. Um, so will I go again? I'm not sure because, you know, the peripheral stuff I hated, but like your sister said, Sting was just amazing. Yeah, she did, yeah. Right, finally, I want to announce my lunch of the month for June. The best food that I had all month by a mile was Nami, Vietnamese restaurant on New York Street in Manchester. Full disclosure, my son Joe works there. Do you get a discount? Do you get like, like two for one? No. Okay. No, wouldn't expect it either. Um, but it's not a cheap lunch option because it's a proper high quality restaurant. But I, I did go there with a couple of colleagues from the office. Um, but for lunches, you know, quick, quick lunch, uh, grabbing something, closely shading it over Tyson Fury's Bayview cabin. Well, let's have another impression. You I, can walk out, I can walk out of my house and buy a burger for a pound. <laughs> um, and all the calorific assault on the senses that was Pancho's burrito in the Arndale Centre. The winner, drum roll, was All Things Nice, where I had a terrific breakfast burrito in the heart of Marple with beans and eggs. I do need to mention one actually thing I started watching on uh, Prime. Have you watched White Lotus? No, but everybody tells me I'd like it because I'm still missing succession. Yeah. Everything I try and get excited about. By the way, I've done a quiz. Which succession character are you most like? Now, you'll like this. So I did it, and the attributes it came back with, it says, yes, I'm dependable, pragmatic, and loyal. So the character I'm most like is Jerry. But then I did it, and I put in that as if I was you. Yeah, yeah, and I've never watched succession, so I yeah, don't yeah. know who you're talking about. Yeah. And it said, you are Cousin Greg. Yeah, that could be a good thing or a bad so, thing. It's not a good thing. Listeners and viewers it. to this podcast, if you're um, if you're watching or listening, tell me what you think of Chris as cousin Greg. Okay, well, thanks for that. Uh, let's hope it's nice. Mm, maybe okay. jury's out on that one. Anyway, that's all for season uh, episode nine of season four of the Northern Spin podcast. We're away for a couple of weeks now on our holidays. We'll be finishing season four, however, with a flourish with Andy Burnham joining us at the end of July before returning for season five in September. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management and sponsor the podcast for the next season, please get in touch with Chris or I or our friends at What Media. Please review us on whatever platform you watch, listen, or consume your podcasts and give us a review on platforms that allow that, like Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One or watch us on YouTube. Hi there, YouTube. Thank you to What Media. Thank you to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor. And my name is Happy Clappy Chris McGuire. But not that happy these days. No.